Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. So, we're looking at Nehemiah chapter chapter six, uh, 7, from verse 70 in chapter 7, and then through chapter 8. Some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 derricks of gold, 50 bowls and 530 garments for priests. Some of the heads of the families gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 derricks of gold and 2,200 miners of silver. The total given by the rest of the people was 20,000 derricks of gold, 2,000 miners of silver and 67 garments for priests. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians and the temple servants along with certain of the people and the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. Is that up there yet or not? It's not there. Okay, right. This will be up there. You ready? Verse 1. When, <laughs> when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women and others who could understand and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah and Messiah. And on his left were Pediah, Mishael, Milkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah and Meshulam. That's not bad. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because... He was standing above them and he opened it. All the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted up their hands and responded, Amen. Amen. You can say that. Amen. They then bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces on the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebathiah, Hadiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. 
Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been known, been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters, as it is written." So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs, in their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God, and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. May God richly bless that reading. What do Donald Trump and Nehemiah have in common? You think of three things this week. First one is that they overcame great odds to reach their goal and great opposition. The second thing is that they have a very similar slogan. Donald Trump wants to make America great again and Nehemiah wants to make Jerusalem great again. And the third thing I can think of is that their supporters yell out the same thing at their rallies. Build the wall, build the wall, build the wall. That's about where the similarities end. If you have uh, not been in church for a while or you're visiting today or you're new here at church and you haven't seen the series, we've been going through a series in the book of Nehemiah and it's a series called Arise and Build. Today is week six. We're up to chapter seven and chapter eight of Nehemiah's story. Who's found the series helpful so far? Excellent. About half of you. That's really good. Uh, for the rest, hopefully today's helpful. Uh, hopefully you're encouraged by God's word. But if you've missed the series so far, uh, let me get you up to speed with where we're at. Um, Nehemiah was a man who had a God-given mission. He was given a vision by God and his mission was to help rebuild the wall right around the city of Jerusalem that had previously been destroyed by the enemies. But bigger than that, he wanted to lead the people back to God. His vision was that the city would be once again a dwelling place for God's name, that the city would literally come alive to worship God. At this point in the story that we read today, um, they'd returned to Jerusalem God had provided for them in many supernatural and extraordinary ways. They had overcome their own doubts and fears, and the war had been completed in 52 days, despite death threats and extreme opposition. I don't think Donald Trump will get the wall built in 52 days, much to the relief of the Mexicans, but for these guys, um, they got it done in 52 days. They'd been through a lot of stuff, a lot of highs and lows, 
But by God's grace, at this point in the story, they'd returned to God with a renewed love and a renewed commitment that was pretty powerful. And I don't think it's any coincidence, because when I read the story, um, and particularly the chapters we're looking at today, there are three areas in their life that they are excelling in. And each of these three areas, I believe, are things that attract the blessing of God in our lives. And so as we read it, we'll see these three things, and they are simply this, generous giving, radically generous giving, unity, and faithfulness to God's word. And today I want to challenge you in those three areas, that we are to be people who are radically generous, that we are to be people who are united, and that we are to be people who are faithful to God's word. And so let me start by talking about radically generous giving. I could almost just say amen to the offering talk today. That was so good, Hayden. And I could almost just say amen and go on to the next point, um, but I won't because I've prepared some stuff here, so I should say it. And so today I want to challenge you as Christian men and women to be radically generous givers with everything God's given you, your time, your talent, and even your finance. And so here I am, a pastor, talking about giving generously. What could possibly go wrong this morning? No one could possibly be offended by a message such as that. I know that some of you today, you're excited. I talk about generosity and you're like, yes, I have the gift of giving. Let's let's talk about this. I want to give my finances to the kingdom of God. I want to be generous in all that I have. And you're excited. Uh, Some of you are just tuning out and you're waiting for point number two. And the third category are thinking, what church am I going to start going to from next week onwards? (laughs) And I've got to be honest, I want to be really transparent today. I've never liked challenging people in the area of financial giving. It's not something you go through Bible college and and you sort of get through it and think, yes, I can't wait to give the giving talk. I can't wait to challenge my people to give generously of everything they've got. I find it difficult because it's something that's usually not well received. And so many pastors, because of that, just completely avoid it. And maybe I've been guilty of that in the past, but I've come to realize That's a pathetic reason for not challenging people in certain areas, that you won't get a good response, because the gospel often doesn't get a good response. Uh, There's no more offensive message than there's only one way to be in relationship with God, and that's Jesus. For the majority of the world, that's an offensive message. And yet I love preaching the gospel, and I love challenging people to discipleship. I love asking you to lay your life down, to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, to follow Jesus in every area of your life. I love challenging people in discipleship. John Ortberg says that nothing is more thrilling than to see someone progress from simply following Christ to becoming a fully committed disciple. And so recently I was reminded that generous giving and discipleship actually go hand in hand. And so when you talk about generous giving, you don't talk about generous giving just to the people who have a gift of giving and then talk to all the other followers of Christ who don't want to give. Uh, Giving, radical giving, and and discipleship go hand in hand in a really powerful way. If you don't believe me, listen to what Jesus says. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Who's got a camel at home in the backyard? If you have today, um, I want you to go and grab that camel after church with all of its big lumps and humps and kicking and spitting and screaming and try and squeeze that thing, that thing, that animal, through the needle you get out of the, out of the sewing kit tonight, this afternoon. Try and, try and squeeze it through and you'll find that it's not easy to get a camel through the eye of a needle. Some people would say that's impossible. And yet Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to say that no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, 
or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In other words, either your money will submit to God or God will submit to your money. There's no third option. You can only serve one master. He goes on to say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, if your treasure is stored up here on earth, then your affection will be attracted to the things on this earth. But if your treasure is stored in heaven, where rust and moth don't destroy and thieves can't break in and steal, then your affections will go to things that have eternal consequences. And so discipleship and fellowship and, and yeah, and, sorry, discipleship and generous giving are powerfully connected. Now as a pastor, people often have an expectation that I'll challenge you from God's word in all sorts of areas of life. In fact, as a community, we should have the expectation that we'll challenge one another in areas of discipleship that are so important. And so there's this expectation that, that I can challenge you from God's word in your priorities and in your Christian character and in your family life and in your behavior and pretty much anything uh, except generosity. It seems to be a no-go zone. Well, even generosity is okay as long as it's general. If you want to cha- challenge me to be gen- uh, generous in my time and, uh, you know, in my uh, affections and laying down my life, that's okay. But as long as you don't talk about money. And if you talk about money, I'll leave the church. I've heard people say that exact sentence to me before. If you talk about money, I'll leave the church. And so why is this a no-go zone so often? Maybe it's because money often has a bigger hold on our life than it should. And maybe the bigger question is, why does Jesus teach so much on money? Well, I think it's because he wants us to be liberated from a slavery to stuff so that we can be set free to a greater devotion to him. When God's word challenges us to give generously, it doesn't primarily, it doesn't primarily challenge us to give our money, although it does do that. It primarily invites us to a deeper discipleship and connection with Christ where we have to trust him in greater ways. Let me say that again. When God's word challenges us to give generously, it's not primarily challenging us to give our money. Sorry for offending you, Jared. Let's go to a new church. If he goes now, he'll get there. Let me say it again. When God's word challenges us to give generously, it's not primarily challenging us to give our money, although it does do that. It's primarily inviting us to a deeper discipleship and connection with Christ where we have to trust him in even greater ways. And so as a pastor, sometimes we can think, because I love you, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable about your earthly riches, but the opposite is actually true. If I love you, I'll challenge you in every area of life from God's word, including your finances, because if there's one area in life that the Bible makes clear is is likely to be a big obstacle between you and Christ, it's going to be your stuff. If there's one thing that will grab your attention and your affection more than anything else in life, it is often our finances. That's precisely what we see in the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 5, a few weeks ago, you might remember we talked about the injustice that was going on in their community. Basically, they were living for themselves. They were being selfish. They were focused on their own lives. They were ripping each other off. And this was within within the walls of God's community. As we get to this point in the story, they've repented of that. And we see in a powerful way that they've returned to the Lord. And what we see in chapter 7 is that now manifests in radical generosity. So let's pick it up at verse 70. It wasn't on the screen today, but let me read it to you. It says, Some of the heads of the families contributed to the work. The governor, 
the leader of this community, gave to the treasury a thousand darics of gold. Now, this week I researched that and I found that a darik of gold is an ancient gold coin. And it's worth about the equivalent of six Australian dollars. And so the governor gave around about $6,000 of his own money into the treasury. Then it says that he gave 50 bowls. Now, we don't know what they were worth. Um, The fact that they're mentioned there, I think they're probably more than the disposable bowls we'll use for lunch today. I think they probably had some value. The book of Revelation talks about those bowls being gold. And so I think these were of great worth. And so we don't know exactly what they're worth. But what we do know is this, that 50 bowls is all it takes to bowl out the whole Australian cricket team. And so it must be, (laughs) that's Dave's joke, I stole it, it's a good one, but it must be significant, 50 bowls. And so he gave $6,000, 50 bowls, and then it said he gave 530 garments for the priests. Once again, we don't know how valuable they were, they could have been relatively cheap, or they could have been the equivalent of an Armani suit. We just don't know what they were worth. Uh, but if you'd like to make a priestly donation of Amani suits to your pastoral team, um, you can place them in the blessed tubs on the way in next week, and Dave and I will both be available for measuring up after the service. <laughs> and so I started with the leader of the community, and he's giving radically to the work and the mission of God. Verse 71, some of the heads of the families, the leaders of the community, they also gave to the treasury for the work 20,000 darics of gold, 120,000 Australian dollars. And 2,200 miners of silver, which were worth about 50 cents each, another $1,100. And so it starts with the leader, it goes to the leaders, and then it goes eventually to the people in verse 72. It says the total given by the rest of the people was another 20,000 derricks of gold, another $120,000, another 2,000 miners of silver, another $1,000, and 67 more garments for the priests. And so the grand total was around about 250,000, 50 bowls and 597 garments or Armani suits. Now, mass was never my strength at school. In fact, when I finished school, I really hoped that I'd never have to use mass again. And so my mass might not be brilliant and it might not be to the exact dollar and it may be a little bit lost in translation. It might be a little bit more or it might be a little bit less. But it doesn't really matter exactly what they gave. The point is this. That it was an act of incredible, transparent, sacrificial, generous giving by God's people, led by the leaders and followed by the people, that was only possible because God had done something extraordinary in their hearts. They were now becoming a community of radically generous people because they'd taken their eyes off themselves and they got hold of a God-given vision for the city that it would become a dwelling place for God's name. As we get to chapter 10 in a few weeks, we'll see that they're also very um, regular with their tithes. Each week they brought their tithes into God's house and they gave generously. And they made a statement at the end of that chapter that we will not neglect the house of our God. And so their giving uh, in this passage is not just some sort of irrational, spare of the moment, I didn't think about it, giving kind of thing. But we see from this story that giving, generous giving, became part of their DNA from this point forward. It's one of our five core values as a church as well, that we will be a generous church, that we will take what God has given us and sow it back into his kingdom to see people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we're going to be radically generous people, we also need to be radically gripped by a vision bigger than ourselves. Now today, I bought a little prop here. I've got some masking tape. You might think that's good. You can put it over your mouth right now. That's not what it's for. Today, I'm going to set out a square here on the platform. You might not be able to see it. 
but you can just imagine it. There's a one metre square they're going to put on the platform today. Talk amongst yourselves while I lay it out. Catch some Pokemon or kill some angry birds or do something. I just sit there awkwardly. Sit this up here. So we've got a one metre square here. Now, can you imagine? I mean, you already think I'm crazy. But can you imagine if I came today and I stood in this square and I said, Church, I absolutely love this square. I mean, I'm obsessed with this one metre square area and I want to live my life just focused on this square. Imagine if all of my attention, all of my affection, uh, all of my finances uh, were, were spent on this square. Imagine if my identity came from this square. And I was so excited about this one metre square that even all of my worries and fears and, and concerns for the future of Offended Able now as well uh, were all based on this square. Can you imagine how crazy that would be? And you think Luke has completely finally lost the plot. And you say it's crazy because there's so much that happens outside of this square. You're outside of this square for a start. There's people to meet, there's places to go, there's experiences to have. And the truth is, they'll be far greater than anything I could experience inside of this square. And so when I step out of the side of the square, I see that there's so many greater things for me to experience. And so it would seem crazy if all of my attention and affection was put into this one metre square. Now, what if I was to change that and say that this one metre square doesn't just represent a little spot on the stage here, but this square actually represents my life, or it represents your life. And everything outside of this square is what happens eternally. Would it be any less absurd for me to spend all of my attention, all of my affection, everything I worry about, all of my finance on this one square? Would it be any less absurd that I would be incredibly focused on that square. The book of James says that our life is like a mist or a vapour, that it's here for a brief moment and then it vanishes. And so even if I live to 120 years of age, ripe old age of 120, my life in the light of eternity, even though it seems so long, is like that. How often do we spend so much time obsessing with the things of this life, worrying about the things of this life? What about Jesus' words? He says, don't worry about the birds of the air. What about the the lilies of the field? Look at how I clothe them. Look at how I feed them. Do I not care for you more? And then he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all this stuff will be taken care of. But the truth is, so often we do it the opposite way around, don't we? We seek first all the stuff and we worry first about all the stuff and we wonder why our lives are a mess. I'll tell you why our lives are a mess. We're doing God's job. Our job is to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and he takes care of the stuff. And so it's incredibly important that we are people that look outside of the square. It's kind of humbling to think that my life is like that. And it causes me personally, regularly, to challenge and to examine my own heart, my thought, and my priorities in life, including my financial giving. As New Testament Christians, we have the ultimate vision. It's not just building a wall or seeing a city come alive for God. The ultimate vision we have is Jesus. Colossians chapter 3 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts, your affections on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Then it goes on to say, Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Just recently I spoke to Kim about doing a stock take on our finances to look at everything that we spend money on. You know, we often think that there are things that we need 
but they're usually just things that we want. If I was to ask you today to go home and write down a list of the things that you absolutely need, uh, you might write down things like, well, I need food to survive, and I need uh, a roof over my head, and I need to care for my family, and I need to pay for education, and I need petrol for the car, and I definitely need Netflix, Foxtel, and Stan. I need Xbox. Good. I need a new iPhone, Apple Watch, an iPad. I need a gym membership. I need to eat out three nights a week, and I definitely need six coffees a day. And they're the things I need. Now, what do I want? Uh, Now, the truth is, there's a lot of things that we think we need, but they're really just things that we want. And even if we can't afford them, we go and get them, and we bind ourselves up financially, and as a result, we restrict generosity by confusing the wants and the needs. Now, I'm not saying this morning that those things are bad by any stretch of the imagination. Confession, I have Netflix. Hardly ever watch it. The kids never get off it. But we have Netflix, and I enjoy Netflix. And so those things are are not bad because God's richly provided all things for our enjoyment. But what I am proposing is this, that it's good often to take a stock take on a regular basis to consider how we can avoid excessive debt and better leverage all God has richly provided for us to be more generous for the kingdom of God. If we're going to be generous givers, we've got to long for life outside the square. We've got to think of things that are eternal. We've got to get a vision that's bigger than ourselves. For the people in Israel, they had stopped obsessing about ripping people off and making money. They looked outside the square and they'd now got hold of God's vision for the city that it would be a dwelling place for his name and it attracted the blessing of God over Jerusalem. So the application for us as God's people is that we are called to be people who are radically generous in every area of life, including our finances. And it will attract the blessing of God. 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, Just as you excel in everything, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. If you do, you will be enriched in every way. Why? So that you can be generous on every occasion. I want us to be known as a generous church that our community would look at us and see us as radically generous people because we serve a radically generous God. And everything we have, we only have because God has richly provided for us. And so let's be people who are radically generous. The second thing they were doing in this passage is that they were united. I'm sure you caught the news this week, but Donald Trump is the new president of the United States of of America. And this week, the day after the election, I walked downstairs and I saw the girls and I just went, doo, 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 and they said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm blowing my Donald trumpet, which was an amazing dad joke. And you obviously think it is today as well. <laughs> Clearly, lots of people don't like Donald Trump. Just look at Facebook and you'll see that. Clearly, lots of people do like Donald Trump. You look at the polls and you'll see that. Our job is not to post stupid things on Facebook about him. Our job is not to criticize and ridicule his hair. Our job is to pray for him. There's no authority on earth that God hasn't put there. And so we need to pray for Donald Trump, that God would use him, that God would change his character, that God would transform him, that he would make wise decisions and put good people around him and make decisions that would honour God. That's our job. But I watched this week his acceptance speech and he said that it was time for America to come together. And he said that he was going to be a president for all Americans. And it's a great rhetoric and it's a great vision. But I sat there thinking, well, it's going to be pretty difficult You've got hundreds of millions of people with different political agendas and different ideas and different needs and different struggles and different ideals. And Donald himself is a a very polarizing figure, so it may even seem impossible for that country to be united. But let me say this, that unity is never easy. 
as we get to verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. Now, as you read the rest of Nehemiah, you'll see that this is not just referring to gathering in one place geographically. It's actually talking about a radical, God-given, powerful unity that is now binding these people together. And that is staggering after what we've read in recent weeks. That is a staggering thing that these people could be united. They had been through so much. At this point, we may even think it's impossible for them to be one. They'd hurt one another. They'd ripped each other off. Some of these people had sold their kids into slavery because other members of the community had lent them money and charged them such excessive interest that they had two options, starve to death or sell the kids. Do you remember we did this the other week on the platform? Sycanthus stole our kids, remember? And I've chosen to forgive them. And it's a wonderful thing. But imagine how difficult that would be. They've just finished a project building this wall and there would have no doubt been many disagreements, many squabbles, many tensions, many pressures. From the text we saw that there's certainly been great moments of doubt and fear. They've been discouraged to the point of almost giving up. They've done the highs and lows, the joys and the sorrows, the pain and the toil, the ups and the downs. There had been many deep and wounding hurts. But here in verse 1 of chapter 8, they'd come together as one. I love this because everything the devil had tried to tear them apart, God had helped them to overcome and he'd now united them together in an incredibly powerful unity. I've got to say, I love the sense of unity we have here at Follow Church. In the first 18 months, it's been wonderful to see people united around a common vision to see Jesus lifted up over this region. And we've had very few of these sort of issues But we need to have our eyes open because there's no doubt the devil's not going to sit back and go, well, isn't that nice? He hates the fact that we're united. And he's going to try everything he can to divide us in the little things that that kind of creep their way in, in the big things, in the members' meetings, uh, in whatever. He's going to try and divide us because he knows that there is incredible power in unity. I believe that with all my heart that God's going to use follow to have a massive impact in this community that people's lives are going to be transformed and turned upside down and inside out by the power of the gospel as God uses us to share about Jesus. I believe that with all of my heart. But let me say this. What we achieve or don't achieve for God's kingdom will be directly correlated with how unified we are. What we do or don't achieve for the kingdom of God will be directly correlated with how unified we are. Jesus in John chapter 17 says, I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one, as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that we may be brought to complete unity, then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Psalm 133, one of my favourite passages on unity. It says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. And then he goes on to say, where there is unity, God commands his blessing. I love that thought. Where there's unity, when God sees a community of people who are unified through Jesus Christ at the cross, that are gracious and kind and forgiving and compassionate, he commands his blessing. It's not like blessing has an option. He just says, there's a unified people, I command my blessing upon them. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? That God would command his blessing on us individually and us as a church because we're a group of people who are united. 
And so it leaves us with two options as individuals. We can either be a roadblock to the blessing of God by the way we use our thoughts and our attitudes and our words, or we can be a conduit of the blessing of God as we do everything we can to preserve unity in his church. Do we want to be a roadblock? Do we want to be a conduit of God's blessing? I really hope and pray that we want to be a conduit so we need to consider the way we live our lives, that we would be people that do everything to build towards unity. It is good and pleasant when there's unity. I think we can all agree on that. And so I can't encourage you strongly enough to be reconciled with those that you're divided from. I want you to imagine for a moment this community in Nehemiah's time, what they'd been through. Imagine the forgiveness that had to take place and the grace that had to be extended to one another after everything that had happened. I mean, if someone in this community had forced me to sell my beloved kids, I'd find it very difficult to forgive you most days. And today at our fellowship lunch, I could hardly imagine sitting down and having a sausage with you. I would want to take that sausage and I would want to, (laughs) let me stop right there. I would want to ask God to help me to forgive. I'd want to rely on his power to be able to extend mercy and grace when people don't deserve it because God's done that for me. And that's what we're called to, to be people of incredible Christ-centered unity. See, the mistake we often make is that we think if we're in conflict with someone and we don't try and reconcile that, it only affects me and the other person. But we know that's not true, don't we? We gather people to our view and people are forced to choose sides and then there's awkward tension and division everywhere we go. And the good and pleasant atmosphere of unity evaporates. And so let us be people who are united because God commands his blessing upon those who are united. In Nehemiah, they came together as one, despite their hurts, and God commanded his blessing over the city. And so the challenge for us is to be people who are united. It doesn't mean we'll always agree on every little thing, but what I'm saying is that when we're united in Christ, we're a community who should love one another despite our differences. And so, first of all, these people were radically generous. Second of all, they were united, and God commanded his blessing over those things. And thirdly, they loved and were faithful to God's word. And follow while I'm here will always be a church that loves and lives God's word. If you're looking for a wishy-washy, feel, God, feel good, self-help, five steps to being a good person sort of church, then follow is probably not the church for you because we love God's word and we know that's where the power is. And if we don't build this church on the foundation of God's word, then Jesus says it's like building on sand and it won't be long before it comes crashing down. And so as I look at this passage, I'm really encouraged because in this community of believers, it's so clear that the word of God is absolutely central to everything they do as a community. And I notice two things. First of all, I notice the role of the teachers and how important that is. Ezra is the one in verse one who brought out the book of the law. He brought it before the assembly. In verse three, he read it out aloud from daybreak till noon for all the people that were there who could understand I love also in this passage that it wasn't just Ezra who taught. There were other guys, the Levites. They were fellow priests. They were men who had sat and learned under Ezra's teaching and leadership and were now qualified to teach God's word faithfully and clearly to others. And I hope and pray as a church that we will be a church that raises up many people who can faithfully preach and teach God's word. I hope one day I don't even get a chance to preach because there's so many good preachers in this church. That is the desire of my heart. 2 Timothy 2, Paul says to Timothy, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust them to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. 
And so in verse 7, Peter did a great job of reading out all the names, and I won't do it again. But these people, these many people, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. Verse 8 says, They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. Right here is a, a description of what good preaching is. It's someone who takes the word of God and sticks to the word of God faithfully, but presents it in a way that is clear and easy to understand. At this point in my life, I've listened to many preachers, some incredibly good preachers and some not so good preachers. And I've I've seen preachers that are very faithful to God's word. And I've seen some of them that they spend hours and hours studying and they know it all up here and they're very intellectual. And then they get up to present it and they're as boring as bat poo. And I'm being completely honest. And they might know it all, but no one is, is inspired because they don't explain it in a way that's clear and easy to understand. But at the other end of the spectrum, I've seen people that are brilliant communicators. And they're funny, like me. What are you laughing about? It wasn't a joke. They're funny, and they're, they're entertaining, and they're easy to understand, and they're easy to listen to. The problem is they don't preach God's Word. And the power of God is not in the person presenting it. The power of God is by His Word and by His Spirit. And so if we don't have the Word, we've got nothing to say except a few funny jokes. And so we need to stick faithfully to God's word, but present it in a way that people understand. And that's what these people were doing. And so the role of the teachers is very important, but the role of the listener or the hearer is also very important. And so today you might come here and think, well, teaching of God's word, that's Luke's job or Dave's job or Ray's job. And my job is just to sort of come and sit and just wait. And I'll just wait for them to tell me something that will change my life from God's word. But this passage makes it clear that you as hearers of God's word have an incredible responsibility. And I love in this passage that what we see is a culture of expectation. That people come with an expectation. In verse 1 we see it was actually the people who asked Ezra to go and get the law of God and to start reading it. They had an expectation. You know, I think a lot of people have an expectation that their life is going to suck. And they wake up in the morning. And they think, oh, another day and I hate my day, I hate my job, it's going to be hopeless today, I don't enjoy life. And guess what? It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Get to the end of the day and they don't enjoy life. But there's other people I know that say, you know what, today's the day the Lord has made, we will rejoice and be glad in it despite the circumstances. And guess what? They end up focusing on the things that bring incredible joy. It's a change of mindset. The circumstances might not change, but the mindset changes. And I think it's often the same when we come to God's Word. We pick up the Bible and we go, oh, it's just too hard to read. I'm not going to get anything out of it. And Oh, I'm going to go to church today. And oh, Luke's preaching again. And I don't like the preacher. And I don't like what he's going to say. And so I'm just going to sit there and get nothing out of it. And, and guess what? At the end of the day, you get nothing out of it. I remember I used to go to a church and there was one particular preacher on staff. And every time I saw their name in the news bulletin, I switched off. Because... They preach like a play school presenter. It's like, now today, we're going to turn to the Word of God. We're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Here's Jemima and Big Ted. And I just couldn't help looking at the rocket clock, thinking, when are they going to finish? And so I went with that attitude, and guess what? I got nothing out of it until one day God challenged me that I've spoken the Scriptures through a donkey, so I can speak through anyone. And so you go with a good attitude and you change your heart and I guarantee you'll get one thing, you'll get something out of that person. So I went and let me tell you, they got no better at preaching. It was still a play school lecture, but I got a heck of a lot out of it just because my attitude changed. 
And I said, God, if you could just give me one thing, one verse, one thought that can change my life today, I'm open and I'm ready and I'm expecting to listen to what you want to speak to me through your word. When we come to God's word that way, man, it's a powerful book. Man, it's a life-changing book. I can tell you it's turned my life upside down. And so we have to have a culture of expectation. But also, they, didn't, they weren't just expecting, but they were attentive. In verse 3, it says, Ezra read it aloud from daybreak till noon, 6 a.m. to 12 p.m. And it said the people played Angry Birds and chased Pokemon on their phones. They Googled boring sermons. They thought, what's for lunch if we ever get there? doesn't say that. It said for, five, for six hours he read the law. Now let me put this in context. This is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis and Exodus, they're exciting. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You can't touch this. You can't eat that. You can't do this. For six hours. I'm only 30 minutes in. I'm, I've got another five and a half hours to go today. I'm going to start talking about the law. And in the next chapter, it said they, they praised and worshipped for another six hours. So that's what we're going to do today. I'm going to preach for six. I'm going to worship for six. Then we'll have our church meeting. Who's sticking around? My family, they're gone. They won't be here. It's just me. And Dave, because he's on staff and he has to stay. (laughs) It said that they listened attentively to the book of the law for six hours, standing there. Thirdly, they were prepared. Verse 4, it said they built a platform for Ezra. They raised him up so they could see and hear as he read God's word. Fifthly, they were, uh, in verse 5, they were responsive. It says, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing up above them. As he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands. This is not a Baptist church. And responded, amen, amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They were responsive. And when I was a young preacher at another church, we planted a campus at Frankston. And let me tell you, I had to learn to preach even if there was no response because it was like preaching to a bunch of concrete statues and they sat there and they looked and I thought maybe they died. And and I thought, am I doing something wrong? I just kept preaching and I learned to preach with all my heart despite what response I got. But I tell you, no word of a lie, there was one guy at the back left-hand corner, sorry, not you, Derek, at this other church and every week he fell asleep. Every single week. It was like my voice was like a sleeping tablet. The moment I started talking, he would just doze off and he starts snoring. And it was really quite awkward. He's snoring with people around him. And, and then he had the nerve sometimes to come up to me after the service and he'd say, great message, brother. And I felt like saying, what was it about? I'll tell you what it was about. It was about lying. And you'd be better off lying in bed because you're getting nothing out of this. There's no response whatsoever. And we had three campuses, Frankston, South Melbourne, Cheltenham. And I'd preach the same message at each campus. And South Melbourne was the most responsive. And let me tell you, it was always the best message. Because because of their response, they was just a room full of Waynes. And they'd be like, amen, preach it, brother. And they would draw stuff out of me that I haven't even prepared. And the Holy Spirit would take over. And they were the most powerful messages because people came expectant and they were responsive to the word of God. How expectant are we? How responsive are we? They were also repentant. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. I love this, that the Bible causes us to come to the point of repentance. These people wept, wept because they realized that they'd fallen short of God's standard. But finally they rejoiced in verse 10. Levites told them not to grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
If you have a tough week this week, take that passage. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And you might think, well, how can I have joy? I'll tell you how you have it. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. You just ask, Lord, I need joy today. Fill me with your joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. And in verse 12, it said they celebrated with great joy. You see, there is incredible power in this book. Sometimes it leads us to repentance. Sometimes it leads us to rejoicing. God's word will encourage and convict us. But either way, it will ultimately bring us to great joy and great hope as we encounter.